Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service, and be not fashioned according to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Welcome to True Magic, the podcast where we are learning to do spiritual service with our physical bodies by learning about the spiritual meaning encoded into the physical forms of creation. This is our third and final Christmas special, the long-awaited Christmas special that should have been released on the 12th day of Christmas, but is actually coming out on closer to the three dozenth day. Which is entirely non's fault. I do not deny it. And to further condemn myself, you might as well know up front that this episode contains a lot less Christmas than expected, and a lot more symbolism of left-handedness. Also some astronomy. Or astrology, who can say? In any case, it has been quite a challenging episode to write, and I can only spend this kind of time because of the good folks in our amazing True Magic discussion group, whose subscriptions sponsor this podcast. The only sponsor we will ever have. The only sponsor indeed. And this is the only ad you'll ever hear on this show. If you would like to join these excellent and insightful brothers and sisters in our signal group, go to truemagic.nz and follow your nose. Right, on to the show. As you probably know, we live in New Zealand, which is in the Southern Hemisphere. And until embarrassingly recently, I actually didn't realise just how unusual this is. I knew people online, mostly Americans, found it vaguely intriguing, um, especially with the way our seasons are reversed and, you know, we have Christmas and summer and all that. But if you'd asked me what percentage of the world's population lived in the Southern Hemisphere, I would have been like, ah, 35, 40%. And, you know, in retrospect, I may have been a bit fuzzy on where the equator actually is. (laughs) But um, it turns out 10%. Mm -hmm. Literally only 10. Half of the world and only 10% of the people. So it really is abnormal, statistically speaking, for us to be here. We are, as it were, geographical left-handers. But this all presents us with a problem because when you believe in a symbolic world when you believe that physical things have spiritual meanings and when you believe as we have argued in this miniseries the church has rulership over time then fitting the northern liturgical calendar into the southern hemisphere is a round peg in a square hole for example with easter there is a real and deep meaning in the symbolism of new life and fertility and spring flowers and bunnies and eggs and all that jazz and the resurrection of Christ is paired with the resurrection of the world from, you know, the death of winter. And of course, God planned it that way. Except that where we live, the resurrection is instead paired with autumn and harvest season and the, the winding down of life. It's completely the opposite. And Christmas is an even more powerfully season-tied event because it is celebrated at midwinter. It's the darkest hour before the dawn. It's a light coming into a dark world. It's lighting little candles in the snow. It's, this is the start of the new year with a tiny dot of light which will grow and grow until blazing summer. Which in New Zealand doesn't entirely work because it's hot at Christmas. It's physically uncomfortable to perform a lot of traditional Christmas rituals. For instance, most Kiwis do not have roast turkey. Turkey is actually available at Christmas time here, unlike most of the year, because it's traditional. So shops want to meet that need, but it is crazy expensive because there's not much demand. Imagine cooking and eating hot roasts and puddings and mulled wine in July, and you will have an understanding, especially if you live in a more temperate area, as to what that is like. Yeah, so we we just aren't going to be roasting chestnuts over an open fire, uh, even if they were in season. You know, we'll be roasting sausages over an open barbecue, and we'll be doing that with some bad grace, wishing there was more shade. You sometimes see Santas at malls, but only in air-conditioned malls, because if you wore a Santa suit out on the beach, you know, you would die. You know, if you're at the beach, you'll be wearing a swimsuit. But of course, New Zealand is a European colony, 
And when people came here, they brought their liturgical traditions with them, which were liturgical traditions that grew out of northern symbolism. And they didn't throw them out and start again. And honestly, I don't think it occurred to them to ask what the inversion of the southern hemisphere means. We were well into the Enlightenment age by that point. And the number of people asking those kinds of questions or thinking about natural symbolism and its relation to liturgy was probably pretty low. So now we find ourselves in an uneasy halfway land torn between symbolism which is absurd in our current climate and a liturgical identity received from our northern fathers and brothers. And what this looks like is sort of a ton of decorations that are winter themed. You've got snowflakes and and spray on snow paint for your windows when it's entirely inappropriate. And then some kind of tacky, ironic things like wrapping paper with Santa on a surfboard at the beach, you know, or a Kiwi wearing a Santa hat. It's this very queasy, ironic sort of self-aware kitsch irony kitsch irony kitsch yeah we're uncomfortable with it last year at Kmart there was a whole bunch of Christmas decorations featuring things like koalas and platypuses because apparently somebody in some head office I assume in the northern hemisphere just thought ah you know Australia New Zealand they're more or less the same yeah we won't even notice it'll be fine but you know we all know about things like mistletoe here which doesn't grow here and you know red-breasted robins which we don't have here at all we're intimately familiar with this concept of Christmas as a winter wonderland, and we've heard of mulled wine and eggnog. Most of us haven't actually had it, but we know what it is. We know the tropes. But for us, Christmas involves eating fresh strawberries and going to the beach and having the ham cold instead of hot because nobody wants to cook, and waiting till 9pm for it to get dark enough to appreciate the Christmas lights, which is very inconvenient because by that time your small children want to be in bed. So it is odd, and we know it is odd. It feels wrong, even to us, even when we've lived here our whole life. And because of Christmas movies and carols about, you know, snow and all the cultural iconography that's itched into our collective subconscious, a lot of us get really excited about a chance to spend Christmas in the Northern Hemisphere. I've never actually done it, but I've been in both LA and England in December in the lead up to Christmas. And it was it was glorious. It felt right in a way that our own Christmas doesn't, which is a strange place to be in. Even LA. Even LA, yeah. Well, Disneyland. So it was it was quite beautiful. But it's intriguing to me that for thousands of years, God's people were confined to a single calendar based on the seasons of the Northern Hemisphere, because practically speaking, nobody knew that things were reversed for half of the globe. In fact, for much of history, it was generally thought that it was impossible to get through the fiery heat of the equatorial regions to visit the Southern Hemisphere at all. Also, no one thought the Earth was flat. Right. So the point is, when the winter solstice came in late December, and the nights were at their longest, and when the equinox came in March and the balance of light and dark flipped, these symbolic seasonal events occurred for everyone, and the liturgical calendar made sense for all of the church. But since Christianity has entered into greater maturity and Christendom has spread into the Southern Hemisphere, this is no longer the case. There's something there that we'll return to at Easter time, maybe. Maybe. But for now, we're thinking about Christmas and those in the North celebrate the birth of Jesus as winter is at its peak, as the days are shortest and coldest, while we in the South celebrate it at the time of summer at its peak, when the days are longest and warmest. In terms of the natural cycle, Christmas in the North is about the dark and Christmas in the South is about the light. As the timekeepers of the cosmos under Christ, this certainly seems like something we should be thinking about. What does it mean? Why did God order the world this way? How should we respond to it liturgically? 
How do we fit our liturgical practices into the natural symbols that God has given us in the seasons? The direct adoption that we've already tried obviously isn't working very well at all. We were just kind of taking on the northern symbolism because we're noticing the oddness and we're wondering what to do with it. And trying to transpose liturgical patterns from the north into the south tends to be naive and ironic at the same time. In fact, ironically, just like the architecture, where when they <laughs> built houses in New Zealand, they had they them, uh, them facing south, south facing, just like they did in the northern hemisphere. Yeah, so if doesn't you work are, here. If you have not really gone through the process of thinking through how the cosmos works in the southern hemisphere you'll be doomed the to sun moves cold, through the northern part of the sky during the day yeah so doubling down doesn't seem like the answer if we're going to live wisely rather than sticking our fingers in our ears and pretending not to notice the mismatch we should be thinking about what it means and what we should do god put the mismatch there he didn't have to design the world with two hemispheres he could have made, <laughs> he it, flat. Could have made it flat but he didn't <laughs> So we should be seeking to understand what it means and what the implications are for how we celebrate Christmas upside down. Well, one obvious sounding solution is to adopt a reverse liturgical calendar where we just do it backwards. So we have Christmas in June and we have Easter in September so that they're still in the right, you know, the, the, the winter and the spring respectively. What do you think about that? There is a brutal logic to it, but it's also obviously schismatic. It's bad enough that you have the hardcore Eastern Orthodox celebrating Christmas on January 6th. Rotating the calendar 180 degrees in the Southern Hemisphere means we'll never be celebrating in synchrony with our Northern brothers, which divides the body. We should be seeking a calendar that adapts to the Southern Hemisphere while maintaining the communion with the majority of the church in the Northern Hemisphere. You don't incorporate your left hand by cutting it off from the rest of your body. Which leaves figuring out what it means to celebrate Christmas and Midsummer and Easter on the wrong equinox, and then gradually working at incorporating that symbolism into our celebrations while scaling back the Northern Hemisphere symbolism, sort of trying to own our own identity and at least embrace ambidextrousness, just like any left-handed living in a right-handed world has to. Indeed, he says, with some feeling. Yes, at this point we should note that non is in fact left-handed. But this turns out to be an extremely challenging task, he says ambiguously. Hmm. So let me emphasize that from here on out, nothing that we are going to say should be taken as more than a groping in the dark, a first exploratory foray into a question that ultimately will require far more work to answer than one couple or one church or even one denomination can achieve. In fact, let me make an additional point, which James Jordan is fond of making, which is that there are things about liturgy, things about participating in physical patterns, that we can only come to a deep understanding of by doing them. I want to emphasize that exercising ourselves in patterns is often necessary to deeply and properly understanding those patterns. In the modern West, we've fooled ourselves into thinking that understanding is a purely intellectual exercise. We think, for instance, that we can understand the sacrament of communion by simply investigating it with our minds, as if doing it is irrelevant to its meaning, and as if actually taking the sacrament has no effect on our minds. But let me give you a close analogy to how foolish this is. Let's replace the sacrament with the reading of scripture. We typically approach scripture in just this intellectual way, treating the text as if it were purely a vehicle for facts or commands to fill our minds with, and once we transfer those commands into our memories, we understand them. But that is not what scripture itself says, as you'll no doubt remember from the passage we opened this episode with, Romans 12, 1-2. Paul instructs us first to present our bodies a living sacrifice to God. 
In other words, we are to embody God's law. And then he says, we will be fashioned by that law and transformed by the renewing of our minds that we may become able to test and discern what God's will is. So for Paul, we do not come to an intellectual understanding of God's law by study and then live it out. Our minds aren't renewed by that intellectual investigation and then we embody it. It's the other way around. We embody God's law and in doing so, our minds are renewed so that we're able to test and understand the will of God, to grasp what it is that we are doing and why it is good, so that we slowly mature in wisdom and become holy and complete. The point is that intellectual understanding is insufficient. Wisdom is not head knowledge. Exercising ourselves in the patterns of scripture is what actually reshapes our minds. And it is only when our minds are reshaped by those patterns that we're able to truly grasp them, to, to attain to the full, mature, complete, perfect understanding of the thing that we're doing. But here's where I'm trying to get to my point. If living out God's law gives us insight into God's law, we can't expect to properly understand it without first living it out. Which means that when we're thinking about liturgical practices, we have to be cautious about offering too much in the way of either meaning or practice with regard to doing Christmas left-handed, at least right now. I think that anything more than a tentative intellectual exercise here would be to put the cart before the horse. We are far too quick in the Western world to develop theories and systems that we become doggedly attached to even before they've had any contact with the real world. I think scripture would have us consider meaning and practice in tandem on the assumption that we will gain deeper and more correct understanding only through practically exercising our ideas, and that we'll get better at practically exercising them only by improving our understanding. So it's a virtuous cycle, but it requires a tight link between knowing and doing, and we haven't got any doing under our belts yet, so I'm not going to assume that I have much knowing to share either. So what we want to do for the rest of this episode is to ask three questions. Firstly, what is the significance of the Southern Hemisphere generally? Why did God make the world this way? And this is a precursor to asking the main question, which is, what is the significance of the apparent disconnect between natural time and liturgical time in the Southern Hemisphere? In other words, in the Northern Hemisphere, we have an obvious connection between celebrating the light of the world being born and the days getting longer than the nights in late December, having more light. So what might it mean that this is flipped in the Southern Hemisphere? Because it seems like a mistake, a contradiction, a paradox. And question number three will be then, how should we then live? What, what changes should we consider making to our liturgical practices in light of our conclusions to see how living out these ideas affects our understanding of them? So question one, what is the significance of the Southern Hemisphere? You have suggested, Little Smokey, that the Southern Hemisphere is like the left hand. Yes. What I want to do is double down on this analogy because when you push it into service, you discover that it is 100% correct. It fits too perfectly to be a coincidence. So let's go on a merry detour into the symbolism of the left hand. Sounds like a Sherlock Holmes title. The symbolism of the left hand. With less murder. Actually, there is not no murder. Speaking of. Yeah. In scripture, we have only three instances of left handers. And now that you mention it, they actually um, are. A bit murdery. All fairly murdery. <laughs> and this makes them quite significant. The fact that they are mentioned as left handers. The first is Ehud. So Judges 3, verse 15, The sons of Israel cry unto Yahweh, and Yahweh raiseth to them a saviour, Ehud, son of Gera, a Benjamite, a man shut of his right hand, literally in the Hebrew, and the sons of Israel send by his hand a present to Eglon, king of Moab. 
Warriors of the tribe of Benjamin are the second set of left-handers that are mentioned in Judges 20 verse 16. Among all this people are 700 chosen men shut of their right hand, each of these slinging with a stone at the hair, and he doth not err. So That's a hair, H-A-I-R, which is a lot more impressive than <laughs> A lot H-A-R-E. more impressive, although even hitting a, a, I mean, yeah, a bouncy I, hair I, I couldn't hit either kind with of, a sling, yeah. impressive. Number three is the mighty ones who support David in Hebron. In First Chronicles 12, 1-2, we learn these are those coming in unto David to Ziklag, while shut up because of Saul, son of Kish, and they are among the mighty ones, helping the battle armed with bow, right and left-handed, with stones and with arrows, with bows of the brothers of Saul of Benjamin. These are the only examples of left-handedness in Scripture. So the fact that every one of them is specifically mentioned in connection with the tribe of Benjamin is fairly notable. There is a twist here, an inversion, because Benjamin, Ben-Yamin, means son of the right hand. This is what Jacob called him, for he was the last of Rachel's children. If you recall Genesis 35, it cometh to be in her being hard in her labor, that the midwife saith unto her, Fear not, for this also is a son for thee. And it cometh to be in the going out of her soul, for she died, that she calleth his name Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow, and his father called him Ben-Yamin, son of my right hand. Rachel, of course, was the wife that Jacob loved, his right hand, but all of the left-handed people we see in the Bible are descended from the son of the right hand. This gives us some clue about left-handedness itself that there is a joke in it, a paradox, a strangeness. There is something unexpected or confusing going on. You can probably see how this fits into the nature of the left hand itself as something marginal, the place in the body where meaning breaks down, at least for 90% of people. The head sends the signal, but whereas the right hand would get the job done, the left is harder to control. It's awkward, it's crooked, darker, more chaotic. Anyone who's tried to write with their left hand, assuming that they are right-handed, knows exactly about the breakdown of meaning that occurs in the crooked left hand. There's also a lot of other natural human symbolism that goes along with having a dominant and subdominant hand. The right hand is strong. It's accurate. It wields the sword or the spear or the arrow, the straight thing that penetrates and pins down. In fact, in some languages, right and straight or right and center mean the same thing. The left hand is weak and imprecise and wields the shield or the bow, the crooked or the circular thing, the bent and indirect thing. And again, in some languages, left and crooked mean the same thing. Sinister. Sinister indeed. The right hand, of course, because it is associated with strength and control, is also associated with order and law and authority, which is why you have Jesus at the right hand of God and why at the final judgment he separates the goats to his left hand, the place of chaos and lawlessness and exception. If you've ever met a goat, you understand how they themselves are left-handed, as it were, compared to sheep. But while symbolism expresses moral truths, it also expresses many others. It is not that the left hand is evil and the right hand is good. Rather, the dichotomy between the hands can be used to express the dichotomy between good and evil. But when you're looking for a broader symbolic meaning, you see that the right hand is also associated with work, and so the left is associated with play. The right alone will impose nothing but order and excess of discipline. It will harden and bind and conform everything into immovable, ossified stagnation. The left hand alone will do the opposite, dissipating everything, loosening and disintegrating every distinction until there is nothing but undifferentiated chaos. In other words, the right hand is the empire and the left hand is Jabba's palace. That seems like a category error. Is it? Why, why Jabba's palace? 
Why are you setting that in opposition to the Empire instead of rogues? The Rebellion. Well, you want to be the Rebellion. You want to have a right hand or left hand. They have order. The Rebellion but they're is... they're not... Jabba's Palace is chaos, right? There's no real order there. They stab each other in the back. They fling each other to the rancor. Yeah, right? yeah. It's, it's too noodly. Yeah. I mean, it is left-handed. It's an extremeness of left-handedness. But yeah. the Rebellion is also left-handed. It's but just the Rebellion that still has less order and, and... They're not an anarchy. They have, they have structure. They have rigidity. They have uniforms. There is yes. a sameness and a differentiation among them. Which so there is, is why they're the good guys. Yes, they're not all identical, but they're not all like a complete ragbag group of noodly widows that don't have any. But the cohesion. the rebellion is more left-handed than the empire, which is too right-handed. I'm not saying the empire is good. So these things exist on a continuum. Yes, you you talk about having you know too much center and yeah. not enough edge. That's right. Well, the, the empire is. Yes. Yeah, you know, too much. It's but, all center. And but Jabba's, Jabba's Palace, Palace is, all, is all way edge. too much edge. Yeah, exactly. Okay. It was just that Jabba's Palace seems like a strange thing to compare the Empire to because they don't seem like they're in the same category or the same order. Well, they're both dysfunctional societies. Yeah. Okay. Anyhow. Yeah. Carrying on. So, incidentally, yes. true political leftism and rightism, as much as symbolic left and right you'll discover that the left is much more interested in individuality, individuality at the expense of community. chaos. Well, ironically, they actually end up being very communitarian in a, in a sense, but I won't go into that now, okay. but it yes. is something that you, you discover is that symbolism will flip once you get to a certain point. You push yeah. it too far, it flips into the other. Yeah. Yep. There's always, it's a polarity. Yes. If you read Aaron Wren's latest newsletter on... The center inst- cannot hold, but the edge cannot hold either. Wisdomous. <laughs> yeah, I am. <laughs> so Aaron Wren, in his latest newsletter, at least it was the latest when I wrote the script. I don't know if it still is. He writes about institutional capture. And if you listen to this podcast and go and read that, you'll be extremely intrigued by the distinctions that he highlights between tactics that work for the left and tactics that work for the right. So we'll leave a link to that in the show notes. But in the correct balance, the left hand brings transformation and life change comes from the margins and you need change the left is where the carnival happens but it's also where the festival happens so it's the side of riot which is Jabba's palace but it's also the side of rest the left hand is the sabbath hand so in some sense the left hand is also the worshiping hand it's also interesting that jesus himself was born not of either of the sons of the right hand wife rachel but of the left-hand wife, the unloved wife, Leah. And that's that's just one example of the kind of inversion that God loves, isn't it? You know, you've got the older brother serving the younger brother. You've got the not-beloved being called beloved. You've got the whole line of Christ descending through these many barren women, things that are just a bit of a twist. Yes, I'm not sure what it means that he's descended from the left hand at this point. It's something intriguing. Someone needs to do more work on that. If you're somewhat familiar with the way symbolic patterns work together... You probably have some suspicions at this point, given everything that I've said, because one of the most basic symbolic dichotomies is masculine and feminine. And this in turn is connected with strength and weakness, hardness and softness, order and chaos, although chaos is a very poor word for it because it has such negative connotations in English. So order and transformation of space and time. The right leads, the left follows and helps. That's masculine versus feminine. The right is direct, the left is indirect. The right is straight and clear and exposed. The left is crooked and dark and hidden. And again, this follows the masculine-feminine dichotomy, which in turn clarifies something about the nature of the left hand, which I hinted at when I first started talking about it, about the Benjamites. I noted, it's Benjamites or Benjaminites? Benjaminites. Benjamoids. Benjamoids. The Benjamoidos. I noticed there that there's something paradoxical, something unexpected, something tricksy about it. 
the story of how Ehud assassinates Eglon, for instance, it's obviously intended to be funny, because Ehud can trick the guards who search him into thinking that he's unarmed, because they don't expect a left-hander, so his weapon's on the wrong side. The obscure nature of the left hand is what lets him get around the guards. Around, get it? Huh. Yeah. And then to complete the humor, he pierces Eglon with a straight dagger, pinning him down, as it were, the left hand using right-handed tactics to kill the tyrant right hand. This is connected with more obvious examples of deceit in scripture, which frequently involve women. If you're a paid subscriber, you can go back to the episode on noodle theory. And I think if you listen to it again, you'll easily see how the serpent himself is left-handed, symbolically speaking. And he in turn deceives the woman, and then women continually deceive agents of the serpent in ironic reversals throughout redemptive history, Rebecca, the Hebrew midwives, Yael, so on. There's a continual pattern of tricksy paradoxes and dark inversions and mysterious mysteries of mysteriousness. Well said. This is the left-handed pattern, and it is the feminine pattern. I must emphasize this because it means that we should expect to find it very hard to figure out how to celebrate Christmas left-handed. If the Southern Hemisphere is indeed following the left-handed pattern, if it is like left-handers themselves, the marginal 10% for whom the weak side is strong and the crooked is straight and so on, then it is going to be intrinsically tricksy. It's paradoxical, mysterious. It is presented to us as a puzzle, just like femininity is presented to us as a puzzle. Are you talking here about, like, feminine mystique as a concept? Indeed, the feminine mystique, something the Red Pill guys hate. Delrock hates the feminine mystique so much. But that's because... As in he doesn't think it exists, or he thinks... Yeah, yeah. That's because he's an excessively right-handed, engineering-brained autist. The feminine mystique is absolutely a thing, and you can see this just by trying to define femininity. Defining masculinity is relatively straightforward. We do it in our book. But defining femininity is very hard. We spend a lot of time thinking about it and wondering, should we try to do that as well so that people can see both sides? And then we were like, no, it's too hard. It's precisely because of the difference between their natures. Masculinity involves that which is stable, that which is defined, that which is visible and revealed and actualized. And femininity involves subtlety and hiddenness and potential. So to define it is really to seek to try to stabilize and actualize it, which is to masculinize it. You're trying to frame a fundamentally non-masculine thing in terms of masculine qualities. The right hand pins things down, and so it can be pinned down, but the left hand eludes this. Because the nature of femininity is not masculine, trying to define it is in some sense self-contradictory and frustrating. Which I guess is why when a lot of men read books by women about women, if they don't get women, they tend to think nothing happens in the books. You know, Jane Austen plots. Mm. Not action-packed. No. People meet, you know, fall in love, misunderstanding, get married. But it's not exactly Gulliver's Travels, you know? Right. I mean, even looking at the distinction between a Jane Austen novel and your classic male action hero type thing, you've got a very clear distinction in terms of the, the sorts of subtlety and... Yes. The hiddenness. The interiority, the interiority of, of it. the plot. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah it's all interior versus exterior. So. Yeah, especially more with something like the Bontes, perhaps. So femininity is fundamentally mysterious. And my argument is that left-handedness follows the same pattern. So the southern hemisphere is the feminine hemisphere. It's meant to be mystifying and perplexing. It is a riddle. It is where there be dragons, or actually Komodo dragons. 
did you double check on that? Is Indonesia in the Southern Hemisphere? Because you mentioned how you were confused about where no, the equator is. No, I did double is. check and it is. Okay. I know it's directly it's above line. Australia. I just, I'll be honest, I know that the northern part of Australia is pretty equatorial. And I, my myself, am somewhat fuzzy on where the equator is there. It's surprising, isn't it? Like, I would have thought that India was sort of, like, touching the equator a little bit. No, it's not. It's way up. Like, I can picture where the equator is in Africa, because I'm from Africa. Fair enough. Yeah. But there's not a lot beneath it. No, well, the like, part well, of the problem is just that for, for the Southern actually. Hemisphere, most of it's the equator is just water. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. So, in other words, with with women, you could you could argue it is the glory of God to conceal a thing and the glory of man to marry it. The glory of man to uncover it, indeed, to figure mm. it out. And that's because the masculine and feminine images creator and creation. So, another way of seeing this masculine feminine duality in the design of the globe is to look at the world as a macrocosm of humanity itself. Humanity has two halves, the male and female, and the globe has two halves, north and south. And the north is dominated by land, it's stable and fixed, and the south is dominated by water, it's fluid and moving. And as the man was made first, and then the woman, so the north was Christianized first, and then the south. No one could have asked about the liturgical paradox of the southern hemisphere until about 500 years ago. For most of Christian history, the north was all there was, but now that we are in the South, asking about it, seeing these connections, that helps us to understand that we ought to be puzzled. The South is a mystery. There is a breakdown of meaning that we must solve. For instance, think of all the weird animals that Australia especially is known for, but also South America. Indeed. We are planning a trip to Australia later this year, and as a family we are very keen on beasts. We tend to measure the success of a holiday by how many beasts we have seen. So I was looking up Australian animals to show the kids, and I was amazed at how many of them I'd never heard of, and I'm Australian. Like, it's not just the kangaroos and the koalas and wombats. You've got things like paddy melons and bilbies and quolls and numbats and quokkas and dunarts and mulgaras and fascalages, I believe, and a little thing called dibblers. Just like we discovered the dibblers. The dibblers, yes, who are endangered. Basically, all of these words sound like absolute nonsense. Yeah. Which and is actually kind of part of the point. Yeah. It's like a breakdown of meaning. Many of them are just inherently comical and paradoxical animals. You've got these squirrels that can fly, and you've got birds that can't fly. You've got mammals that lay eggs. You've got these terrifying-looking ginormous spiders that are actually harmless. And then you've got these tiny, innocuous-looking jellyfish that can kill you. So the idea of monsters is something which goes very far back in history. It's kind of primal built into us, the idea of hybrid creatures. And kangaroos and platypi are a perfect example of that kind of thing. You see hybrids on the edges of maps. In ancient maps, they always have weird creatures that are half one thing and half another. But in the real world, of course, the breakdown isn't a real breakdown. Australia isn't a, a place of complete chaos and disorder. Rather, it's more like a flip in perspective. It's the addition of something new that challenges the existing categories and makes you question all of the order that you thought you knew and adds meaning on top of the meaning that you already have once you solve the puzzle. So a marsupial is just a mammal with a twist. And also, as you say, there's a joke to it. Yeah. It's a comical mammal. It was quite funny, actually. I showed Lockie uh, kangaroos hopping. He's five. And he just burst out laughing. He just thought it was the funniest thing ever. And, you know, we get used to it because we know kangaroos hop. But for apparently the first time here, at least remembers seeing a kangaroo, he just thought it was hilarious. You can see the same kind of effect in play if you consider the skies of the north versus the south. God put the stars up there for signs, we are told in Genesis. They teach us something. Well, what do we learn by observing the sky in the north? 
one of the first things that you'll learn is that to get your bearings to find your direction to locate north, in other words, to orient yourself toward geographical meaning, you just need to locate a single star, Polaris. You head for Polaris and that's north, that's it. But the south is a puzzle. Because the Earth isn't flat, you notice how we're hammering that point. I feel like, I mean, I hope that our listeners aren't struggling with this concept. I, I'm hoping to get some flat earthers into our listeners oh, good. and to reform them. Okay. But because the Earth isn't flat, you can't see Polaris from where we are. And so you can't just find north. So what we do actually is we find south, which is fitting. But finding south is indirect. Aligning yourself to geographical meaning in the southern hemisphere requires finding a cross in the sky, which is surprising, the constellation Krugs. And then looking for the testimony of two witnesses, the stars Hadar and Alpha Centauri or Rigel Centaurus. And that in itself is kind of striking. So it's right up there in the sky, almost like they were put there for science to teach us something. There's the big old cross, and if you draw a line down through it, it won't point south. You think, well, that surely the cross points south, right? No, you have to combine that line with a line from two other stars nearby to find where the south lies. So it's like a, a little mystery that you have to solve. So these examples all prime us to have certain expectations about the inverted symbolism of Christmas in the South. We should expect it to challenge our existing categories and systems, but we should also expect that if we rise to the challenge and solve the mystery, we can integrate it and discover new meaning. We should expect the breakdown of meaning to be only surface level, and it should draw us into find real meaning beneath that and deepen our understanding and appreciation of what God is doing in creation. For example... The platypus and echidna, being monotremes, create both milk and eggs, thus being the only animals that can make their own custard. So I think we've covered that. If we go to the second question about the significance of Christmas in Midsummer specifically, why the disconnect between our natural symbolism here in the Southern Hemisphere and the symbolic logic of celebrating the coming of Jesus in the depths of winter? Why does it seem that natural time and liturgical time are out of sync? We celebrate the light coming into the world when the light is just going out of the world, and the nights are just starting to get longer than the days. Well, actually, we don't really. Nights in February are longer, aren't they? Nope. Really? They feel longer. It's just, it's just hotter. So that's actually something we're going to talk about in a second. Okay. So how do we decipher this puzzle of Christmas and Midsummer? You might notice that the way I framed it earlier on was focused on light, and you picked up on that. And the reason that I framed it this way is that I want to avoid making the mistake of importing our later cultural traditions about white Christmases to the actual natural symbolism of midwinter. Not all places have cold winters with snow. If you go by the Christmas cards, the chief symbolism of Christmas is around cold and warmth. Right, we actually have Charles Dickens to blame for this one. Um, he was a child during the 1810s, which was a very aberrant decade in terms of cold. It was the coldest decade they'd had for ages. And it was so cold that for the first eight years of his life, these sort of formative memory-making years... It actually did snow at Christmas, which in England wasn't and still isn't typically the case. So, of course, childhood memories being as strong as they are, he grew up thinking that a white Christmas was the proper way Christmas should be, and he wrote that into his stories. And then his stories were so influential that, you know, English kids have been feeling disappointed nearly every year ever since, because Christmas just isn't actually white in England. And, of course, midwinter in Israel, where Christmas first happened, is actually balmy enough for shepherds to be tending their sheep in the fields at night. It generally gets down to around 7 degrees Celsius, which is 45 Fahrenheit for those still living in the Dark Ages. And before you get, oh, the metric system came from the Enlightenment, 
I am quite comfortable with miles. Celsius is simply a better human scale measurement than Fahrenheit. So deal with it. Winter in Israel does get chilly, but it's not going to kill a hardy shepherd and it's certainly not a white Christmas. So I think that the chief symbolism is much more to do with light and dark than cold and warmth. Although of course those are obviously connected. It's not that cold and warmth are irrelevant, but they're dependent on light and dark. Midwinter is when the nights are longest. Christmas falls right after the winter solstice as the nights finally stop getting longer and start getting shorter while the days finally stop getting shorter and they start getting longer. So light is returning to the world. Now, I don't want to throw a spanner in the works here, but since we're talking about the symbolism of having Christmas in midwinter or midsummer, I feel I should point out that you have gone on record denying Jesus was born in midwinter. So don't we need to ask whether Jesus was actually born on or at least around December the 25th in the first place? Because if he wasn't, it really seems like that should factor into our deliberations about how to celebrate Christmas in the first place if we're doing it upside down or right side up. That is a fair question, because I actually don't think Jesus was born in midwinter. He was born just before the autumn equinox, not just after the winter solstice. And I believe that we can pinpoint his birth with great confidence to September 11th BC3, which was Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year in the Hebrew calendar, and also the festival of trumpets, which Israel's kings used to mark their inaugurations. And I say this because the Magi saw an astral event. Astral just means of the stars, by the way, don't get excited. And they interpreted this astral event very confidently to indicate the birth of the king of the Jews. And Revelation 12 describes an astral event which is connected with the birth of Jesus and would quite clearly signal the birth of the king of the Jews. So it seems very strange to me to deny that those were the same events. And we can pinpoint the date of that event using modern astronomy software, making it about as airtight as any date you can try to pin down in ancient history. And more importantly, it's a date that's derived from scriptural evidence rather than calculated from unreliable extra-biblical assumptions and records. So I'll be posting a separate article about this for those who are interested, but I don't really want to go down this rabbit hole today because the thing is, I don't think it matters. I'm not saying that it doesn't matter that Jesus was actually born in September or around the equinox. That is something that we should investigate and ask about the significance of. But there is a clear distinction, I believe, between a historical date and a liturgical date. The historical date of Christ's birth is interesting, for sure. And especially for seeing how it fits into the Hebrew calendar and how the signs that God placed in the stars actually work. And I do think it's worth asking as well, what is the significance of having Jesus born at that time versus around the solstice? But the thing is that in this episode, we're not investigating the historical date of his birth. We're investigating the liturgical date. The liturgical date, Christmas, is not fundamentally about dating the birth of Christ. It is about celebrating it. It is essentially a symbolic day chosen for its importance in the natural cycle of creation, not for its correspondence to the actual birth date of Jesus. So to take an analogy, here in New Zealand we have a holiday called King's Birthday, which happens every year, but it happens every year at the same time, regardless of who is king. It doesn't fall on the king's actual birthday. In the same way, Christmas does not fall on the King of Kings actual birthday because the church did not know when that was when they first started celebrating Christmas. They tried to calculate it, but they were basing that calculation on very dubious assumptions. Yet in the providence of God, That calculation ended up being in midwinter, which is obviously symbolically important. Now you can object that because of this natural symbolic significance, God should have arranged history so Jesus was born in midwinter, 
And I think that it's interesting to investigate the discrepancy or the tension that seems to exist there. Or you could say that he should at least have preserved the date of Jesus' birth so he'd celebrate it at the time that he did choose. But given that he did not do either of these things, I would suggest abandoning that line of reasoning because you are not wiser than God. So where this leaves me is simply acknowledging that the vast majority of the church celebrates Christmas on December 25th, and one does not honour one's mother by changing the dates that she schedules her parties. So getting back to natural symbolism, I've said that in the Southern Hemisphere we celebrate Jesus' birth just as the light is going out of the world. But now I want to challenge that way of framing it. Because as you just got confused about before, which I will leave in for the sake of humour, the whole thing about symbolism, as we saw with the left hand, is that it admits of multiple perspectives, and your perspective on Christmas is actually not about the light going out of the world. You think that the days are longer right now than they were at Christmas time. Are they not? <laughs> it really feels like they are. Christmas time <laughs> is right after the solstice. All right. The days have been getting shorter the whole way. Imperceptibly, though. Imperceptibly. That's kind of the thing. Maybe it's so we can spend more time outside because it's hotter. Maybe. So symbolism admits of multiple perspectives, and in fact, admits is too weak a word. Symbolism is loaded with multiple perspectives. It's not subjective, like we're able to get a different interpretation just by looking at it differently. We're not relativists. Symbolism, rather, comes freighted with so much information, there, there is so much meaning built into it, that it can't help but be multifaceted. And this means that sometimes the greatest challenge to understanding a symbol is to discern the specific angle from which God intends us to view it. Now, before we get back to whether the nights are actually getting longer, I want to prove this from Scripture, because I know discerning listeners will say, this is really loosey-goosey. You can't just be, oh, it means whatever I want it to mean, which is really, I agree with you. I'm not saying that. I'm not remotely suggesting symbols can mean anything, only that not every part of their meaning is always meant to be in view. So here is a scriptural example for you to prove the case. What is the symbolic meaning of a serpent? Well, so the average Christian will probably say serpents represent evil, and this is certainly true at times. And a more thoughtful Christian might see a connection between a serpent's body and what it represents and say the serpents are agents of chaos, maybe agents of destruction. That's moving in the right direction, but it still makes them sound uniformly evil. So what about John 3, 14 to 15? As Moses did lift up the serpent in the wilderness, so it is necessary that the Son of Man be lifted up, that everyone who is believing in him may not perish but have life eternal. Now you can say, well, Jesus was made to be sin on the cross and the serpent represents sin, so there you go. And that's true enough, there is certainly something to that. But when we look to the cross, we look to Christ, not to sin. And God foreshadowed this by putting a serpent on a pole. And in most cultures, as anyone reading John in his original context would have known, serpents were associated with enlightenment, immortality, healing, renewal, and the guardianship of usually water, but later on, hidden treasure, things that are valuable. Water brings renewal, healing, immortality, and is connected to the spirit in scripture as well, which is the enlightenment through Christ. So it, it simply does no justice to scripture to close our minds to such obvious meaning. In Exodus 7, Moses' staff becomes a serpent and eats the staffs of Pharaoh's magicians. Certainly, Moses' serpent wasn't evil. In the same way, Psalm 104.26 tells us that God made Leviathan, the twisting chaos serpent that we mentioned in Noodle Theory, 
as a creature to play in the sea, not something evil. Even the original Serpent Satan was not made evil, and we see other seraphs, serpent angels, praising God in heaven. Consider also that we ourselves are to be as shrewd as serpents. One might just as well say that trees are representative of evil because Jesus was crucified on a tree. Yes, anyone hung on a tree is cursed, but that isn't the sum total of what trees mean. In fact, just as trees represent what is straight, clear, stable, the center in which all things hold together, the place that's solid and unchanging, so serpents represent what is subtle, ambiguous, uncertain, the margins where things are always turning and churning, the place where change and transformation takes place. Both are good parts, necessary parts of God's original world, provided they keep their proper place. It's like the argument I once had with a Bible study leader about uh, yeast, the kingdom of God being like living in a lump. And she was like, but yeast is evil in the Bible. Right. It's like, well, yeah, sometimes, but also clearly not right. always. An excellent example. The symbolism of yeast changes from the Old to the New Testament. Yeah. Anyway, well, I feel like we've gotten a little off track. Again. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have to anticipate a lot of objections. At least I've learned that I have to anticipate a lot of objections, especially when we're dealing with a topic that is so esoteric-seeming and so kind of intuitively derived as symbolism. It's, there's so much that you can't completely prove using some kind of logical syllogism that when I can actually prove something, especially something important like this, I feel like I need to. Yep. I want to make sure that our readers can see that I'm really not just making things up to suit myself. Symbolism is multivariate, and it is meant to be interpreted contextually, and scripture itself shows us this. So what is the multivariate symbolism of having Christmas in Midsummer? Well, it's more about what is the multivariate symbolism of Midsummer itself. When we are presented with a natural symbolism like Midsummer, we have to consider everything that's bound up with it. So far, we've looked at the perspective of light. The winter solstice is when the light starts to come back into the world. The summer solstice is when the light starts to go out of it. But there's a lot else going on in connection with this fact. For instance, in midwinter, you really feel the import of the solstice. Even here in New Zealand, where winter is extremely mild, we don't even get snow where we are, people are keenly aware of how short the days have become, and how long the nights are, how dark it gets early in the day, and how late the, the sun finally rises, because often you're getting up in the dark and you're coming home in, from work in the dark. It's oppressive. So even many average Kiwis who are almost completely insulated from the natural world by our modern culture and are not paying attention to the natural rhythms of the world, of the cycles of nature, they're still aware of when the tide finally turns and the light starts to come back into the world. They'll mention to each other, you know, today is the shortest day, it's all downhill from here. But nothing like this happens in summer. Even supposedly intelligent Shut up. wives of men who pontificate learnedly about symbolism think that in February the, the days are longer. The summer solstice isn't the time when we all breathe a sigh of relief and say, yeah, finally, less daylight. Finally, winter is coming. Hooray, no summer. Summer isn't anxious like winter is. Summer is joyful, whereas peak winter is the worst time of year. We're, we're framing it, of course, in this term. There are many ways in which peak winter is the best time of year. But... In terms of the light, peak winter is the worst time of year, but peak summer is the best time of year. And this seems to me a very important and natural difference between the two solstices. Midwinter is bleak and dark and anxious, and midsummer is sunny and bright and joyful in a way that kind of continues on, has a, an echo all the way through to autumn. Yes, endless summer being... Endless summer. Ultra. That's my thing, I guess, is not that February seems longer, it seems more summery. February does in some ways seem more summery. Because we get corn and... 
Right. Hot. Right. We get all kinds of fruits. The harvest continues. Another thing connected with that, which we kind of overlook a bit because of our industrial age, is that midwinter is traditionally the time when you have absolutely no food growing anymore. It's when you sort of look at your harvest from last year and you start to ration it and you start to worry a bit and you start to eat a lot of salt pork and preserved things because nothing is fresh anymore. You don't have extra flowers or greens to ornament and embellish your dishes and you don't have anything sweet unless it's been preserved that way. But midsummer is the time of plenty, and that's when you have the fresh strawberries and everything is green and flourishing, and you can eat your fill. So I think that since symbolism must be interpreted contextually, these are very important natural differences between the symbolic context of Christmas in midwinter and Christmas in midsummer. They're, just, they're built into our psychology, the way we experience these things. Christmas in midsummer shouldn't be interpreted primarily in terms of the loss of light in the way that midwinter is about the return of light. Rather, Midsummer should be interpreted in terms of the abundance of light. Now, let me make another connection. Think back to the historical progression I mentioned before. Female follows male, south follows north, in terms of Christianization. Given this fact, it seems very natural to me to relate the Christianization of the world to the symbolism of the Southern Hemisphere. So what I mean is, I don't think it's just a coincidence that it was only after the Gospel had changed the entire Western world that Christians started settling in places where the natural symbolism of Christmas was about joy and abundance. I think the Southern Hemisphere has a natural symbolism of post-millennialism. You mean that the spreading of the joy and abundance of the gospel into the world brought believers into a location where that joy and abundance was symbolised at Christmas time? Exactly. Well said, Smokey. Right. Like, it would have made no sense to early Christians to celebrate Christmas at a time when the light is at its peak, because the gospel hadn't done that yet. The gospel was a, a tiny light in the dark. They could have understood prophetically that, that was how it was going to be. But in terms of the actual historical way that Christianity grew, it really did start out as a small light as the days slowly became longer. Indeed. And Christianity slowly spread its light throughout the whole, whole world. We know from Proverbs 4.18 that the path of the righteous is as the dawning light, shining more and more unto the perfect day. And so in like manner is the path of the Lord Jesus as he reigns from heaven, impressing righteousness into the earth through his church. So it is fitting that when the light of that day has grown sufficiently for us to see it approaching, he adds new symbolism to the celebration of his birth, a symbolism that looks forward to the consummation of his reign in the glory of the new heavens and earth, where every tear is wiped away and we want for nothing, rather than a symbolism that just looks backward to its inauguration in a little dark stable. So that brings us to the third and final question, which is, as always, how then should we live? If we in the Southern Hemisphere experience in the natural cycle of nature the joy and abundance of Christ's reign in the world, how should we be adjusting our Christmas celebrations accordingly? Indeed, and let me emphasize, before I even take a crack at this, I don't think by any means I've exhausted the puzzle of the Southern Hemisphere's natural symbolism. I've only offered one obvious answer that I have found. I'm sure the mystery is much deeper than this. But assuming that I've at least got the surface level significance basically right, I think the foundational thing that we need to be doing is owning the connection between summer and Christmas, instead of treating it ironically or apologetically and trying to kind of shoehorn winter into it instead. If we have a clear vision of what summer means and how it really makes sense of the birth of Jesus in retrospect, how our Christmas time is celebrating the effects of that birth as much as the birth itself, and glorying in a light that seemed so small then, but which now we can see is actually huge, 
then we can celebrate the light intentionally and deliberately. So let me gesture toward a few ways of doing this, and I'll use food and music and decorations as my touch points because these are such a significant part of Christmas. In terms of food, I'd like to see us embrace cuisine appropriate for the season without feeling somehow like we're failing to celebrate Christmas properly because we don't have roasts and puddings and mulled wine. I'm not suggesting that we should abandon roasts and pudding and mulled wine, but it is entirely possible to enjoy those things in their natural context in our midwinter. For instance, if we wanted to use the traditional liturgical calendar, our midwinter is right around the feast of the Nativity of John the Baptist, and it's easy to see how that is very fitting in terms of the progression of history with John being born into the darkest hour before the light came into the world. But for Christmas, we should be focusing on summer foods. Right, like strawberries are the obvious one here. In New Zealand, Christmas strawberries are a big thing. We have fantastic strawberries. There are sort of pick-your-own-places uh, we have them on the pavlovas and in the ambrosia and... And we always take the children to get strawberry frozen yogurt. Exactly. And the, to us, they do look and feel Christmassy. To the point where I think if I was in a Northern Hemisphere Christmas, a traditional, you know, proper white Christmas, I would genuinely miss it. I wouldn't feel as Christmassy without them. In terms of music, I don't want to so much get rid of some of the more overtly Northern Hemisphere carols as much as I think that we should start seeing some really good Southern Hemisphere carols supplanting them. I don't mean replacing them, but rather that it becomes normal to sing about light and warmth and joy and plenty and summery things, connecting these back to the birth of the King of Kings whose reign ushered them into history. And then when we hear carols like In the Bleak Midwinter or even I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas, we enjoy it as a nod to our brothers in a very different part of the world who are enjoying very different natural symbolism. It's interesting because I don't feel like we grew up with many New Zealand Christmas hymns that do exist because we went to a fairly traditional church which sang the, the normal carols that we know. But there are some, and I've looked them up, but they are all still suffer from that slightly ironic kind of wry embarrassedness that we have. So they all start off with, like, like, like Taharanui is probably the most known one that's about the spreading of the gospel to New Zealand. It's a beautiful one, but it starts off not on a snowy night by star or candlelight, nor by an angel band. They came to our dear land, Te Haranui, glad tidings of great joy. It is it's very much all about the fact that we're not in the Northern Hemisphere and it's a bit funky here. Mm. You know, it's a bit like Melikalikamaka. Yeah. <laughs> but they're all like that. And it would be sort of nice if we could move beyond that at some point and be like, yes, okay, we get it. It's sunny here. We don't need to constantly be comparing ourselves to snowier places. We know there's no snow. It's okay. It's okay. In terms of decorations, I don't know how this is elsewhere, but what you'll see in New Zealand is a lot of them are very winter themed. You've got your lights that look like icicles, you've got snowflakes, you've got your spray on snow, you've got evergreen wreaths and holly and mistletoe, which I understand is actually an invasive fungus, but it's about the only thing that is alive during winter in some northern areas. Obviously, some of this stuff is tied up with Santa, which is a whole other discussion, and I do have thoughts on Santa, but let's not derail any further. Suffice to say, I'm not suggesting we should absolutely get rid of everything winter-themed, but I do think it should be largely displaced by well-considered and purposeful summer imagery. For instance, fruit is a very natural Christmas symbol here in the Southern Hemisphere. Jesus is the fruit of the Virgin's womb, and summer is the time of fruit, and Christmas trees already have symbolic fruit on them in the form of red globes and whatnot, and we can lean into that symbolism and take it beyond the tree. We do have the Pahutakawa, which is colloquially called the New Zealand Christmas tree. It has big, buffy red flowers on it. But yeah, I mean, are you saying we should have more cornucopiae? Cornucopiae. Cornucopiae. Well, 
if you think, for example, of how you could change a typical evergreen wreath, like a Christmas wreath that has holly or fir in it, yeah, you could take one of those. They're very popular for good reason. But imagine how glorious you could make them if you didn't limit yourselves to evergreen leaves and holly berries. Yeah. I mean, it is ironic, isn't it? Because most traditional Christmas ornaments were about making do. It's like there's nothing right. to decorate with. We have right. literal <laughs> leaves. We have an abundance. And a few Let inedible berries. Yeah. And... You know, we could put flowers on it. One of my favorite Christmas carols is, let me have a crack at this. Es ist ein Ross in Sprungen. In Sprungen. You gotta really... Flim it. Yeah, you gotta flim it. Which is a, a German carol which translates literally as a rose has sprung up, although there is an English version that is called Lo, how a rose air blooming. How is this your favorite Christmas carol? I have never heard of it. Es ist ein Ross oh, okay. in Sprungen. You've I definitely heard you sang that. Yeah, okay. So this is something that we can expand on. We can do much better than roses. For us I like in the roses. southern, oh, I like roses too. But they for us in, in the southern like hemisphere, <laughs> it isn't yeah. strange to be singing about flowers at Christmas time. It's the time of flowers. Yeah. So that imagery is entirely natural. So I think that we should be playing that up and trying to use it. Well, I think we should have cornucopia because honestly, when else can you do a good cornucopia these days? We used to be a proper country. We didn't. We were never a proper country. That's the whole point. But somebody used to be a proper country and they had cornucopia at some point for decoration and we don't get them. Do you know what a cornucopia is? Why don't you tell our audience what a cornucopia is? <laughs> a horn of plenty. It's like a, a big horn. Often they're wicker for some reason. A big, you know, like shofari type So the only thing cornucopia that I can think of is in the Hunger things. Games? Yeah, that's Kind of, because it was, it was Which plenty Which was obviously and, and all life, about plenty. So I, I had that connotation in my mind, but then there was but also the dark. killing and the... Yeah. It's more pastries and grapes and wonderful things. That sounds like a good idea. Like Buckus would have. Not that we're condoning Buckus. No, not a huge fan of Buckus, despite C.S. Lewis's attempt to shoehorn him into Narnia. The weirdest and most misplaced part of Narnia. But he went a bit far. I don't mind it. A little bit too medieval. Okay. I think we should also make more of the fact that the Christmas holidays are the holiday-making season here. People go out off for Christmas in a way I presume they don't in cold places because like, there's nothing to do because it's really cold. Unless they fly south. Yeah, well, true. But we, we don't have to. Like we ourselves. Indeed. But so people always head to the beach, you know, it's when they take their time off work and they go and they have lots of barbecues and parties and it's very natural to celebrate when the sun is shining and we've got long evenings. And maybe instead of having dodgy music festivals and pride festivals and so on, we could be doing something ourselves that were a little bit less horrific. We could be perhaps thinking about ways that we could do Christmas festivals that don't require us to have, like, carols by candlelight Yes. at 9.30pm. Yes, this is also a problem with Guy Fawkes. Like, by the time it's dark enough to see the fireworks, your kids are feral because it's, like, 10pm. It's a problem, people. We don't have to be celebrating Guy Fawkes, though. Well, liturgically, yeah. <laughs> we could just have an actual proper midwinter festival with the we didn't have fireworks. Fireworks at some point, then, yeah. Oh, <laughs> not according to my mother. Oh, I know. Don't get me started. I like the fireworks. poor dogs. The poor dogs. <laughs> Won't somebody think of their nerves? I love my mother, everyone. I hope this episode has given you some useful insights or provoked some new thoughts, even if you're not in the southern hemisphere. We will be returning to our regular programming soon, <laughs> won't we, Smokey? Yes, actually. With the next episode of season one, Smokey has been hard at work on the script, following up on modesty and clothing. But until then, if you enjoy True Magic, it really does help us out if you give us a good rating and review in your favorite podcast app. So 
If you could go and do that now, we would be very grateful. And we're also very grateful to our paid members who make it possible to produce this content. And if you would like to support True Magic, head on over to truemagic.nz and follow your nose. Smokey, what do paid members get? They get access to our private True Magic Signal group, which is actually awesome. Like, no one dreadful. There's no one dreadful in there. Yeah, I mean, we can only say this now. At, at the time of recording, there's no one dreadful. Give us a few weeks, who knows? We have access to our Talking Nonsense podcast, which is as... An occasional... An occasional lucky dip of bonus episodes curated by myself. And, of course, the warm glow of re-enchanting the world just that little bit harder. Until next time, continue to serve the Lord in spirit by presenting your bodies a living sacrifice to him. This has been True Magic.